0: You've been racking up your grocery bill trying to eat more plants. This episode will help you fix that. Hello, friends. I'm Desiree Nielsen, and welcome to the All Sorts Podcast. This is the perfect follow up to my solo episode last week. If you haven't listened yet, it's all about troubleshooting on a plant based diet. Because this week, we're chatting with Nisha Malvani of the amazing Cooking for Peanuts blog about making Plant-Based Cooking, Practical and Affordable. In fact, she has a brand new cookbook, which I love, called exactly that, Practically Vegan. So why? Why are we talking about budget-conscious plant-based cooking? Well, you know, it's always an important thing as someone with two kids. I definitely know that we spend a lot of our income on food trying to eat a healthier diet. Also, I develop recipes for a living. So my accountant said to me one time, I have never seen anyone spend more money on food than you do. And that's true. So, you know, we have a larger budget for food, but I still feel the crunch. And for the rest of us, you know... 2022. Inflation is really real right now and food prices are rising. So how do you make your grocery dollar stretch farther? Not to sound cheeky, but eating more plants is a really good place to start. But the key is to eat the actual plants. I'm talking the staple foods like whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, fruits, and vegetable. Lentils are a lot cheaper than beef. Beyond meat burgers not so much. And when we hear that like eating all of these like fancy vegan health foods is expensive, this is why. And where we get into issues with our food budget is when we buy a lot of these prepared foods like breakfast cereals, snack bars, vegan cheeses, that kind of stuff. You know, a great example of this is granola. Granola is a super expensive food. And like the popular granolas in my local shop are easily between like I don't know, 8 and $15 for a relatively small bag. And my family eats a lot of food. Yet you can make granola at home for a fraction of that price. And it really isn't that difficult. You just need someone to show you, hey, here's a really great Super useful recipe. You can make it on Sunday and have it all week and save a ton of money. And I've got to tell you, I was at this big supermarket chain this week because I needed a few things and my local shop closes early. So it was already closed. And as I was wandering the aisles, you know, I think you go on autopilot in your own store, but when you're in a store, you don't normally shop in like all of a sudden you're paying attention to everything. I just noticed how expensive some things are, you know, particularly stuff I don't buy a lot of the time, like breakfast cereal. Like so many of them were like $6 for not even a very big box that would probably last my family of four, like two days max. And even after we eat breakfast cereal, like an hour later, everyone's like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, (laughs) which is why my family most mornings gets oatmeal and not cereal most of the time. But then like, If you're like, okay, so Desiree, that's great, but I don't know what to do with tempeh or how to make lentils a couple of times a week so that I don't get sick of lentils. So how do you cook all of these staples that you're maybe not used to preparing all the time? Well, you probably head to a blog like Cooking for Peanuts, along with over 400,000 of Nisha's other Instagram followers who love her down-to-earth practical recipes for things you eat all the time, like sandwiches, stews, curries, and pastas, all made from whole plant foods. In this episode, you're going to learn so much about Nisha that you probably didn't know before, like how she took a detour as an investment banker before finding her calling in food and nutrition, how parenting changed how she cooks, and what this dietitian thinks we get wrong about plant-based nutrition. So let's dive in. Okay, so I am very happy that you're a publisher. I love in the beginning of your book that you're like, I did not want to write about myself in this book, which I feel like food blogging can often be, like some people really put themselves forward in it and some people really like, you know, let their food do the talking for them. And so I thought it was so charming in your book that you talked about, I didn't want to write about myself, but my publisher said that I had to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love that you did because we could learn so much about you and your origin story. Like, can you tell us a little bit about growing up and, you know, you had this contrast in your life between like being raised in Jamaica and going to school in England your produce loving dad and your spam loving mom, like how did all of that influence who you became as a
1: chef and like a a creator? So funny when you said that, I was just thinking how Jamaica was like no shoes, short skirt world. Right. And maybe flip flops. Whereas England, it was like, pull your socks up and pull down your uniform. (laughs) (laughs) They were so different food wise too in Jamaica, coming from, you know, being of Indian descent and the Jamaican culture, food was really flavorful. Lots of, you know, spices and herbs and lots of curries. In boarding school, there was no flavor. It was so bland. And they introduced the most bizarre meats to me that I had never heard of or seen, like steak and kidney pie. I just didn't know people ate kidneys. And It was, you know, shocking. Now, Jamaica has, you know, oxtail soup, so there's some correlation, but I was definitely introduced to some scary-sounding meats that we were not given a choice, like haggis. We were given no choice over whether we could eat them or not. We had to. And it was interesting to be allowed to not eat something. You had to get a letter from your parents to cancel that food. And you were allowed, like, two foods in total, and I chose Brussels sprouts and beets. <laughs> Again, we never ate those things in Jamaica. <laughs> I love how
0: it was not the haggis. It was the Brussels sprouts and beets that you chose to cancel. Yeah. I,
1: don't, I don't think um, we were allowed to cancel haggis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the things that
1: your parents would cook for you growing up in Jamaica? So my mom is loves to work. She's a workaholic. Yeah. She has no interest in cooking. She can make tea and maybe a fried egg. Not sure if she still can do that, but she gave us a lot of you know canned foods because she worked six days a week at least. Mm-hmm. And so we definitely grew up with our fair share of Chef Boy and which tasted good at the time, you know. Yeah. I used to um, love Chef Boy Same. <laughs> it has some nostalgic value now. And my dad was the complete opposite. He loves fruit and vegetables, always did. And he actually will eat a banana with the peel on. My kids think it's the best party trick. I explained to him that it's called a peel for a reason. And he just isn't swayed, by he just, you know, he's the whole fruit, the whole vegetable. <laughs> so they are really very different. But I think this has been actually a really good influence on me because I come to the table being very open-minded to the, you know, preferences of so many people and not, I don't feel like I'm judgmental of how people eat or what their dietary choices are, because it's so ingrained in our childhood. And, you know, food means so much more than what we are eating. As a dietitian, like, I think it's just such an important
0: philosophy to have because we have so much like judgment built up sort of in this like diet culture that we're all inhabiting this idea of like food is good or bad, or like, how can you eat this? You know, especially around like, you know, even in sort of wellness circles, like getting this, Oh, how could you eat non-organic food? And it's like, I grew up, on like a steady diet of craft dinner and macaroni (laughs) and cheese. That's what we call it in Canada, craft dinner and like chef Boyardee and Campbell's chicken noodle soup, lots of fruits and vegetables as well. It was like a weird 50, 50, but like I turned out just fine, you know, like, and and having, having that sort of like reality check that yes, we want to like eat as nutritiously as we can, but also that you can eat stuff that isn't quote unquote, like you know, someone's most picturesque notion of like, what a
1: healthy diet is and we're going to be just fine. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's like that whole 80, 20 rule, right? 80% of the time I try and eat what I know is really best. And 20%, I just eat what I really want to eat, you know? So, and you are, you're going to be just fine. So,
0: yeah, I always love telling people, you know, it's the idea of like what you put into your body strengthens you, nourishes you so that you're able to like, yeah, exactly. Have that glass of wine on a Friday night, have an ice cream with your kids on the weekend and your body's like, oh yeah, got this. no, No big deal. Like I've got everything that I need to do the things that I do
1: and it will be just fine. And I think, you know, you can look at the 20% as like for your mental health. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Things make you happy that may not be super healthy, but they're healthy in the fact that your mind is better because you enjoyed it. Yeah. And that food plays
0: all of these roles that are, yes, nutrients are important, but food is a really important part of our culture. Food is a really important part of like our social gatherings and our connection. And like that all has a massive impact
1: on like what we call health. Right. And I think we're so hard on ourselves in this world about so many different things that that's one area that we do our best, but don't, you know, beat yourself up if you're not perfect all the time. Yeah.
0: So you didn't start your career as a chef or a dietitian, but you started your career as an investment banker. How did you fall into that? Or was it something you'd wanted to do like since you started school?
1: Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> didn't even know what an investment banker was. And my husband says that I'm a career du jour person. Like I, even schools, I switch things. I'm always moving around, changing things, trying new things. But I've stayed in nutrition and cooking for so many years now that I think I'm here to stay. When I went to McGill in Montreal, I was in the pre-med program. So I was always, you know, science focused. I love chemistry. I still love chemistry. I like could eat and dream chemistry, but basically, so I was in the pre-med, but I didn't work hard enough because college was like, suddenly we were free from boarding school and all these liberties. And I completed a minor in biology and I was deciding what to do with my major still because, you know, I felt I needed to take a different course. And someone said, if you do, you know, economics, you can go to New York city and become an investment banker and they will pay for you to live in New York city and to move there. And I was like, wow, that's so cool. Really? (laughs) I want to live in New York city. I'm going to be an investment banker so I can move. (laughs) And that's literally why I did it. I switched into economics. I did the whole major in like a year and a half because coming from chemistry, economics is a breeze and (laughs) I got a job in investment banking and they did pay for me to move. So (laughs) It, it worked out in essence because it brought you to New York. Exactly.
0: So you made it to New York. You're a young woman, like living the dream in New York City. When did you decide that food and nutrition became your path? Because it feels like not a 180 from what you studied originally, but it's definitely a 180 from like
1: the finance world. So, you know, investment banking was definitely a stepping stone and I think it lasted maybe a year. And then I decided to... Become a second grade teacher. <laughs> so, I love it. I, I got myself a position in a New York City private school, and I was an assistant teacher for second grade. And I really liked it. I've always had that teacher mentality, but I wanted to go back to college and do something I really loved, not economics. And I always was passionate about food. And I wanted to do education, but I didn't want to do elementary school education. So I decided I would go and do nutrition education. Mm-hmm. So it incorporated my love for teaching, my love for chemistry and my love for food. And so I went to Columbia and started the program and I loved it. And I never looked back. There were no more career du jour. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I feel like we have a
0: similarity there and that you this energy bubbles up for change or for newness. My, my husband always says like, you know, watch out when I get that in me because some new project, like I write a new right. book or we have to move a house or.
1: <laughs> it like, can be very dangerous, right?
0: <laughs> it absolutely can. It's like, what does this need to like blow things up every once in a while? Like, where does that come from? <laughs> I know. I remember
1: for me at one point, it was like, I need a fourth kid. Let's just have a fourth kid. And luckily he you know, convincing that wasn't the right thing at that time <laughs> for well, us. And having three children already, because I have two, I, you
0: know, my philosophy was always don't let the children outnumber the parents, you know, so you have two <laughs> hands for each child. So my hat is off to you. And you had three kids over the course
1: of doing your master's and becoming a dietitian. Like, What was that period of your life like? So I actually, I had three kids in three and a half years, <laughs> which I feel mm-hmm. like if you're going to do something, just do it quickly and move on. <laughs> so I almost completed my master's just before I had the first kid. So it wasn't too bad. And I managed to finish it within six months of her being born. And what it did mean, though, is everything was just put on hold. Mm-hmm. So I had all this knowledge and I just put it all on hold while I raised them. And I, re- I continued to read tons of you know articles and journals and stay up to date And as I started to prepare food for them, you know, nutrition was a huge thing for me. So even though I'd put it aside, it's in your life every day, all day, because you're eating. So it never really went away, but I knew I'd have to wait to really, you know, take it seriously again.
0: Do you think that having three kids and and you know, watching them learn to eat and navigate feeding them, like, do you think that has impacted your nutrition philosophy a lot? Because like the nutrition philosophy that you share at the front of the book, I love, because I do think folks think of dietitians as like the food police, when in reality, like we're way
1: more chill than like most people think we are. No, you're right. It's so true. And I think the main thing with three kids is you have to be very practical. Like that's why, you know, my book is called Practically Vegan, which everyone's confused by the name. All the recipes are vegan, but it's, you know, it's practical. So, and you don't have to be fully vegan to like the book. You can be practically vegan or wanting to eat more plant-based foods, but it definitely made me take a much more practical approach. And you're also living with three beings that have completely different, you know, tastes, right? So I was never a short order cook. So I never like made different meals for each child or, but it, it does allow you to see that food preferences are there. And, you know, it made me able to adapt things. So without remaking a whole meal, I could, I learned how to just adapt a base, a base meal to suit everyone quickly and efficiently.
0: Yeah. I love that. It's actually vegan, but it's like a practical science your book And I, and, you know, I think that it's, really important particularly for us in the plant based world like there are so many folks who are really curious about eating more plant foods and one of the things that i love about your book is that it seems like you've really tapped into how a lot of people cook you know even people who aren't plant based the idea is like i want to have a burger tonight i want to have a pasta tonight or I need some sort of protein part. If I'm not going to make chicken tonight, I'm like, I need some sort of protein. So there's like all of the incredible tofu recipes. Like when you serve folks who aren't plant-based, like how do you approach feeding them? They just eat what I give them. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you're coming over that. and I'm making a meal. You, you just eat it. <laughs>
0: I love it. <laughs> but do you Would you stick to like, you know, sort of like the traditional, like Eurocentric, like meat like meat, starch, veg kind of thing? Or like, do you like, no, we're doing a
1: curry tonight or doing like a a mixed meal kind of? I, I do ask them like what they like, what they don't like. You know, some people, they hate spicy food or they don't want to eat a lot of carbs for some reason. I like carbs, but, you know, so I do ask like general questions it's different to when you are a meat eater and you're inviting a vegan over, right? Because <laughs> yeah. gonna... So when you're a vegan inviting a meat eater, they'll eat what you give them. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the categories for me are sort of evolved because, you know, pasta is a huge category for me because when your kids are little, you know, they're going to eat pasta and pasta is not like a bad thing. You can add so many vegetables, you know, Basically, you can hide stuff if you need to, whatever it is, it sort of gives you a tool to introduce all these new foods to your kids, right? I think, you know, curries is culturally, I'm just, curries are a big part of my culture. And so all these separations sort of came about naturally. But when inviting a lot of people, for me, it's just easier to do something saucy, like a curry or a stew or, you know, that kind of meal, because you can make it in, you know, in a large batch. Yep. So whereas if you're making burgers and patties, you kind of have to say, well, how many are they going to eat or how big should they be? So I think like having those like recipes that are easier to make for a large number of people is, is good to just have like a bunch of those ready to go. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned carbs, which I'm so glad you did because in your book, you talk about this, you know, and it, get, it gets back to all of these dietitian rules. They're like, oh, ho hum, we've heard that before, like 80 20. But if you really follow these rules, like they are life changing. And you talked in your book about, you know, like, yes, eat your brown rice, but also sometimes just have some white pasta. <laughs> it's delicious. And, I think there are so many, you know, misconceptions and a ton of misinformation, particularly around carbs. Whereas, you know, like we in the plant-based world eat tons of carbs all the time because plants are carbs. Like, right. what do you think folks get wrong about healthy eating, like
1: particularly in our plant-based world? I think they, firstly, they read a lot of misinformation and they think it's true. And I think you really have to be careful that what your source is you know? And I think also a lot of people view it as an all or nothing approach. There's so many extreme ways of eating nowadays. Like, you know, I have to be keto. That means I can't eat this and I won't eat this. And then you're sort of setting yourself up for failure. And once you fail, you're kind of like, oh, I can't do this anymore. And you just throw it all in, you know, you just give up. So you want to set yourself up in a way that it's doable and you're not going to give up because you can still eat things that you enjoy and, you know, pair it with something healthy. If you want to eat some white rice right now, you know, have it with a delicious curry full of vegetables and you're going to be just fine. Or, you know, I think if it makes you eat the healthy thing, that's, that's great. You know, same with, you know, with having kids, it's the same concept. And as you said, in the beginning, it's not going to harm you like want to do this once more. It's just not. And so make things approachable. I'm very much about making something approachable because then you'll stick with it.
0: And what was your plant-based transition like? Like, was it quick? Was it gradual? What sort of, you know, sparked that desire to move towards a vegan
1: lifestyle? So most things I do, most transitions are so fast for me. (laughs) (laughs) Like I gave up drinking maybe eight years ago overnight because I knew Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be able to do it gradually. And I, I, you know, I'm from Jamaica. We drank from very young. So I had my fair share There were no like rules around this stuff. So I was ready to throw in that towel, but with food, I think, you know, there was definitely that teenage period where I was fully vegetarian. Everyone like kind of did that. We were all vegetarian for a while and it was like trendy. And then as I, in college, I started to follow a much more vegetarian diet, and moving to New York City, I kind of got swayed by all the choices of all this meat. And, you know, just, there was so much hair, but I soon realized I didn't feel well eating like that. And I just didn't have much energy and I felt much older than my age, I think. And I went back to vegetarian and then I gradually just started taking dairy out and, you know, eggs out, everything out. And then so it was more gradual from the vegetarian to vegan, I'd say.
0: You know, I'm I'm trying to think because I went vegetarian as a teenager too. And I was like, there must have been something because I didn't think about like what was going on around me in the 90s to be like, oh, like go vegetarian. But there must have been something happening because it wasn't just this like sparkle. Like a few of us were just so ahead of our curve and we went vegetarian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like culturally, it must have been like in the ether, I think. I think so. I think like something was brewing, maybe. Yeah, totally. But yeah, I'm. I was the same. My vegetarian to vegan transition was, yeah, pretty pretty slow. Whereas I went vegetarian pretty much overnight.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's easy to go vegetarian, and then going vegetarian to vegan is probably a little more challenging because you also have to pay attention to, you know, suddenly you have to, you know, think about B12 Mm because you won't get it and. You know, you do have to be more mindful and a little more planned about what you eat, I think. But once you sort of learn those things, it's easy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's easier now than ever before. And I,
0: you know, like when I think about in 2022, like everything that's available, you're like, this was not around in 2001. (laughs) Like, we're like, you know, I would have just eaten a lot of like raisins and almonds, which I did. I tried to go vegan when I was 19 and like living in New Zealand randomly at the time. And I think I ate like, I would just get like pounds of like raisins and almonds as my snack. Cause
1: I didn't know what to eat. So it fell apart entirely, but like in 2022, it'd be a pretty easy
0: transition.
1: <laughs> no, that's so true. That was my um, breastfeeding food, raisin and almonds. Yeah. I would just keep them all by my bedside because you know, breastfeeding, you're just starving the whole time.
0: Yeah. And there's like fewer crumbs on babies' heads if it's something like
1: Raisins and Almonds Oh, I guess subconsciously I must have thought about that.
0: I'm pretty sure I left a ton of crumbs on my baby's heads, like constantly.
1: (laughs) Raisins and almonds would have been better. There are a lot worse things I probably did. Yeah.
0: So I wanted to ask you, because your incredible blog and Instagram is you know, all about being budget minded and eating plant based while maintaining a budget. And people so often mention that healthy eating seems expensive, but, you know, cooking for peanuts shows people that like you can eat well for less. So like, what are some of the tips and tricks, you know, with three children living in New York, like what are some of the tips and tricks that you use to cut costs, but feed your family well?
1: So a big focus of my cookbook is that the recipes use the same ingredients over and over again but in different ways and with different you know vegetables different aromatics and what i you know being in new york city i don't actually have a pantry so you know it's valuable real estate so i have you know a selection of herbs and spices that i use just all the time so nothing gets wasted they're not just lying around i have a bunch of condiments in my fridge that are really versatile. And I don't think like there are no rules for me with cooking where, oh, it's this type of cuisine. So I can only use these sort of ingredients. And for me, everything goes like, you know, if it tastes good, why not just throw it in there? And I think taking a playful approach to making food and not being anxious and knowing you're going to fail sometimes, but it's still going to be edible. It just may not be the best. Taking those risks, you become really confident as a chef and you don't, you know, you could, you don't need to be an expert chef to develop the skill. It's just something that happens with experience and you learn just how to use the same things in different ways, which is budget-friendly. And then, you know, also shopping bulk bins is very helpful in supermarkets and just using tons of fresh produce, like as opposed to packaged items, because fresh produce, you know, is less expensive and it doesn't all have to be organic, you know? Just eating fruits and vegetables is huge. So don't beat yourself up that, oh, these aren't all organic. They don't need to be. And in fact, frozen vegetables are loaded with nutrients because as soon as those vegetables arrive, they freeze them, which actually is sometimes better than even when they sit on the supermarket shelf. So, you know, having just, you know, when you're making a soup or stew, I'm like, oh, what condiments can I throw in there? And it makes you just use things up and you realize you don't need a lot of fancy stuff. You know, you just need your aromatics, your fresh produce, and then your herbs and spices that, you know, you've, that you have at home already.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I, you know, especially for us here in Canada, when we think about like, for so much of the year, we're importing everything from like California and Mexico. And it's like those fruits and vegetables take a long time to get to you, but like you've got Canadian grown stuff in the freezer. And that is like a really nutritious choice. And, you know, I love that you mentioned organics too, because I'm a huge proponent of organic agriculture as like a movement and a philosophy to right. like nourish the soil. But I do think we get so caught up in that, oh, if it's not organic, it's not healthy. And I always have to remind people that, you know, like 99% of all of the nutrition scientific literature out there that says fruits and vegetables and like whole grains and legumes are healthy for us. We're not done, you know, on populations that we're eating exclusively organic. So we know it's just, just
1: eat the produce, like eat the plants and you're going to be okay. I mean, I'm sure my dad's banana peels were not organic, you know, (laughs) and he's like, you know, in his mid seventies doing headstands still. (laughs) He just ate fruits and vegetables. He didn't know where they came from.
0: (laughs) Have you ever, because you, because of the banana peel, have you ever made like banana peel bacon? Like I saw, there was like a, like a trend a while back where like all of a sudden there was like a bunch of banana, like I saw curries with banana peels And like people making like a bacon, like a vegan bacon out of banana. Have you ever
1: tried anything like that? I'm not like a big trend person. I'm like so old school, but I tend to like stay away from trends. I don't know any of any of the national food days are. I'm like, you know, in a bit of a bubble of like, I don't know. But I think what I do love is, which I recently started making when I on maybe a year ago when I visited Jamaica is porridge with green plantains. Mm. So, you know, it's all that resistant starch, yeah. but I ate so much that I literally just, it was just all treks and it was just, oh, no. I overdid it. So I had to, you know, give it a break, <laughs> um, but banana bacon kind of sounds cool. That's one I might have to look up. I know. I just feel like you have a familial <laughs> connection to banana
0: peels and that would yes, be like, that's
1: <laughs> the ultimate. I, I should make waste. that for my dad.
0: <laughs> he
1: would love this actually. I'm, I'm yeah. going to go look that up after okay. this. Thanks. Okay. <laughs>
0: I'm wondering, because your kids are older now, do they like to cook? Do they cook alongside
1: you? Or is it like, this is mom's kitchen? My 17-year-old just got into college and- Exciting. Yeah. I say to her, you know, you never help with the laundry or you never help with the cooking. And she goes, oh, but then I wouldn't have had time to, you know, focus on getting into college. You know, it's like been so much work. And I'm like, well, if you don't help, you're not going to college because who's going to pay for it, you know? (laughs) You know, it it depends on the kid. Jokes aside, she was never big into the kitchen, but my youngest is loves baking and she's Mm -hmm. incredible at it. And she's a great cook. And actually during COVID, we had her do so much of the meal preparations. (laughs) Like she would make full dinners for us. She was 12, 12 Uh years old. And she would literally just look at the ingredients we had and make this full dinner sometimes. Because when I was busy doing the cookbook or you know, my husband was working. We'd be like, can you cook for us tonight? And, you know, she would run with it. Like she was just naturally inclined that way. The second one is kind of in between, but I think like from very early on, I could see like the eldest didn't love the kitchen. The youngest was really competent. I can't say she loves the kitchen anymore because it's, maybe she's a bit scarred from the whole COVID thing, but (laughs) She definitely is good in the kitchen.
0: That's amazing. To be 12 and making meals, I I tell my kids, my kids are turning 12 and turning seven this year, this summer. And I tell them that like my job as a parent is not to do everything for you. It is to make sure that you're like a competent adult. Like you need to be able to like cook some things when you leave this house and keep your apartment, you know, like moderately clean when you leave this house. I'm like, (laughs) so they're grumbling all the time. My my oldest likes to cook, but, Only when it's like something they want to do, like something they're interested in, like not every night they like to cook. And my youngest just wants to quote unquote bake by free pouring all of my ingredients into (laughs) bowls and attempting to put them in the oven. So we've done that a couple of times. I'm like, so baking is a science.
1: (laughs) That's so funny and so true. I have to say my youngest has taught me quite a few things. I'm embarrassed to say like she's got a natural talent that's incredible. And no, no doubt
0: growing up in a house where, you know, food is such an important part of life. And this is like your, your work as well. Like, I I think that has a really big impact on them. Like, even if they seem like they're not interested in cooking, like I think it imprints.
1: I'm hoping so for the eldest. I'm like, you know, I hope you just take on a lot more of this in college. Like, you know, the funny thing actually, they always say is I don't cook with much salt, if any, because so much of the, condiments I use already have salt. So I'll, you know, make dinner for them and they'll be like, mom, it's so delicious. But can you imagine if it had salt in it? (laughs) It's like you, you achieve something to make this so good without adding extra salt, but this would be amazing if you did. (laughs) So I always write for people to add salt to taste because I think it's so individualized like people's liking for salt. I don't like a lot of salt, but I think it's so easy to add that later. I know it does bring out the flavor. There's a huge benefit to it, but I just, you know, I prefer to add it at the end. That's amazing. People like you, I wish I, I came out
0: of the womb liking food heavily, heavily seasoned. <laughs> and so like, I wish, yeah, I wish I could like adjust. And I know, I mean, the dietitian I mean, knows that I can adjust my taste buds, but I just, I adore salt so much. So yeah, I always wish that like, I could just, yeah, like cook, cook with less because I definitely have like passed it on to my kids.
1: They love it. It's okay. That's in your 20, 20 of the 80. Yeah, exactly. The
0: salt is almost entirely my 20. It's probably
1: 18 of the 20. You still have two left. Don't worry.
0: I wanted to get some tips from you because, you know, as someone who cooks for a living, but then also feeds a family, and has busy weeks like the rest of us, like, how do you streamline your weeknight cooking? Like, are you like a big meal prepper or do you just sort of like plan your meals out? Or do you again, start with like the basics, make sure you have tofu, tempeh,
1: legumes, and then throw things together. I'm probably not the best person for this question because (laughs) I, you know, I I don't know if you've realized yet, but I'm a little bit impulsive (laughs) by nature. So, you know, the investment banking thing, but I am not a good planner, but that's, That's why I actually, I think my approach to cooking is actually helpful in that sense, if you're not a good planner, because when I go to the grocery store, I buy a ton of different produce, you know, and I just keep it all different proteins, tofu, tempeh, and I keep it all in my fridge and wherever else it is. And I know like which spices I already have, which condiments. So I'll sort of think, you know, maybe around lunchtime, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? Or And I kind of start planning it in my head because I kind of know what I already have. And I'm a big wing it person, but because I do it so much, it sort of just becomes it's easy now, you know, and I find it just much harder to sit down and say, okay, what am I going to eat Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and go shop for those days? Cause that's just so much like brain power. I can't like, I don't even have that. So I think I've sort of solved this issue for myself by just, you know, sort of keeping it pretty simple, but having all these ways to change it up within that simple framework. And, but my kitchen is a big mess every night because <laughs> I used to be very scared of dirtying, you know, pans and pots and all that. Now I kind of just love cooking so much that I just don't think about that. I just sort of go with it and I'm really, it's very therapeutic. But I do end up having a lot to clean. But I know I can do it much more efficiently if I really, you know, thought about it beforehand. But the actual meals come together super fast because, you know, I'm so familiar with all those methods by now. Like your aromatics, cook your aromatics. What veggies am I going to add to it? What protein am I going to add? Okay, and so it sort of just works itself out. But definitely like going to the grocery store on, you know, I go on Sunday mostly. I know in my mind what the whole package looks like.
0: Well, in doing that way, I have to say that, you know, I'm not, I think because I cook so much for work as well, like the idea of like, oh, Monday through Friday, these are dinners, like same thing. I don't have on the weekend. I was like, oh my gosh, that's like a world away. Like maybe I can plan Sunday dinner on Sunday morning, Right, exactly. (laughs) but then also going to the grocery store like that and like having that philosophy, it, I feel like it would allow you to be more budget conscious because now you're not. Pulling those recipes and saying, "Oh, I need to have cauliflower." Well, cauliflower is like eight dollars this week when I go to the grocery store. And instead, you can be like, "Oh, but broccoli is a dollar ninety nine a pound," and so I'll grab the broccoli. And you can you can grab the things that are on sale, that are most cost effective, and then like figure out those meals
1: exactly. And you're not shopping for like all these you know strange ingredients that are different in each recipe and like yeah, you'll never use again you know it's and i think it also allows you to be a little more adventurous just like you said if something's expensive oh what can i use instead you know yeah. and i think one thing with writing this cookbook that you know i really encourage people is once you make enough of my recipes you're going to have this ingrained in your head this technique is going to become second nature to you and you don't need to follow my recipes you're going to be able to just be more explorative and you know take more risk and creative because once you learn the basics, you're able to do that. Well, and the, even the way that you've written your
0: cookbook allows the person who's done that. It's like, okay, so I've I've brought all the things home. Like I got the chickpeas, I got the lentils, I got the tofu, I got the tempeh, I've got all the produce. And now you can pull out your cookbook and because you're like, okay, so I want to make a tofu dish and you have all of these tofu options. And then you have all these legume options. It makes it really simple to sort of like... Yeah. Wing it or like decide as you go based on what's affordable and what's on hand so that you like save money and waste less. Exactly. If someone is new to plant-based cooking, so they're either just like starting this journey or maybe they're plant-based and they don't cook a lot for themselves yet. Where do you feel people should start? Like what is most helpful in terms of like techniques or like recipes to master kind of thing? I think like
1: having this you know, sort of approximation in your head of a bowl and what, you know, the food groups kind of look like, no need to measure it all out or anything like that, but just saying, okay, I need some sort of protein. What are all the choices? So familiarizing yourself with, you know, the fact there's tofu, tempeh, you know, beans, lentils. Lentils to me are the best thing to start with because they cook so quickly Mm -hmm. and they are loaded with iron and protein and you can literally do anything to them, add any vegetables, whatever, like I love lentils. I think so, you know, knowing these are my protein choices, so I should, you know, get some of that. And then I need vegetables and maybe also a green vegetable and then some sort of grain. So, you know, just starting with the basics there and choosing, you know, which ones of those categories you're going to use. And then, you know, I think as a beginner, roasting is a great option and you can do it with oil or without oil, you know, You can use lemon juice, balsamic vinegar, coconut aminos is great for roasting because it kind of caramelizes those vegetables. And you can even roast your, you know, bake your proteins. So you could use, you know, like sheet pan dinners are a great start. Like, you know, roast the vegetables, have the protein on the other side of the baking sheet and just cook some grains and, you know, and then, you know, sauces and dressings to me are huge. Because then you can do that and turn it into like four different meals, depending on which sauce or dressing you add. So that's why I devoted a whole chapter to that in my cookbook, because they're so easy to make. You don't need a lot of ingredients and they will just change the dish entirely. So as a beginner, you know, just think of those food categories, think of how you're going to get them, have an assortment and then make a different dressing or sauce and roast them all. And you're done in like 20 minutes. So awesome. If we, in our kitchen, I I have
0: a saying that when in doubt, roast it. And exactly like, it's like the tofu goes on the plate, like whatever, like vegetables are at the bottom of the produce drawer, it all goes on the plate. And that's what I do. Put the sauce. And I heard someone say, what's a vegan's favorite food? It's sauce. And I think that's the reason.
1: (laughs) It's not coconut milk. Yeah. (laughs) But coconut milk can go in the sauce. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Coconut milk, cashew sauce. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay. So I close every episode with five rapid fire questions that my guests have not heard before, but I promise they're real softballs. So I want to start the first one because you talk about using sort of like the same spices in your spice cabinet all the time. What are the three spices you cannot live without? Okay. I
1: would say smoked paprika, chili powder, and cumin. Love it. (laughs) Cumin runs through my veins. It's (laughs) one of my favorites. (laughs) I have like several more, but you were very limiting. Oh, oh I, I know. Well, I'm actually surprised that you didn't
0: like call me on it because sometimes people are like three. How yeah, exactly. can I possibly? Okay. So like if we were to expand it to five, what would you pop in there? Oregano mm-hmm.
1: and probably curry powder. Last book you read and loved. Practically vegan. No, kidding. <laughs> That's the last <laughs> I book I read it. and loved. I had to oh, thank you. You're so sweet. No, it's so sad. I have to tell you that. I read like nutrition journals now all the time because I have like no time or I read SEO articles. (laughs) So I would (laughs) say all I read right now is SEO, how to keep my blog, you know, super healthy. But I guess one of my favorite books is how to make friends and influence people. Is that what it's called? Yeah, totally. Classic, I love that. Pizza or pasta? Pasta.
0: Your favorite splurge.
1: My favorite splurge is dark chocolate, definitely.
0: And then the recipe from your new wonderful book, Practically Vegan, that
1: everyone should make first. I would say the tofu bolognese. Oh, yum. Because pasta. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just so good. Like uh, my kids are addicted to it.
0: I'm going to throw in a bonus just because you said that, like, is there anything
1: that you love to cook that your kids are absolutely like, no,
0: never. Like, that's just not my thing.
1: So for my middle child, it's roasted peppers huh. She or cooked peppers. Sorry, it's yeah. cooked peppers. Peppers in her mind should never, ever be cooked. They should always be eaten raw because, you know, there is some sort of flavor that they, you know, submit when you... There's, there's a flavor that changes with peppers once you cook them and she can't stand that flavor. So... That's her pet peeve. Oh, and she awesome. hates beets, but you know, I think she gets that from my childhood. So. <laughs> <laughs> I can't blame her for that one. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much, Nisha. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Like I said, everyone needs to run out and grab Practically Vegan because it is such a useful book for people who want to eat really well and they're just like, but I don't have a lot of time to cook and I don't have a huge budget. Like It's just the opportunities to, like you said, take these vegan basics that are such staples and so nutritious and make them super flavorful so that you love what you're eating every single night.
1: I just think people are going to love it. Oh, thanks so much. And thank you for having me. It's really fun to meet you. You me too.
0: I hope you found a few tips to help you find your footing in the kitchen. Definitely check out Nisha's wonderful and very inherently useful new book, Practically Vegan. And speaking of new books, remember that Good for Your Gut, my brand new plant-based gut health cookbook is almost here. You can head to the link in the show notes to grab Nisha's book and to pre-order Good for Your Gut. And remember, when you pre-order before May 3rd, you get an exclusive bundle of seven new recipes that you won't find anywhere else. Not on my blog, not in Good for Your Guts. so don't sleep on it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast because you do not want to miss next week's episode with Dr. Will Bolsewitz. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the All Swords Podcast, which is produced by myself and Tracy Ramsey and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, Stolo, and tsleil peoples. Until next week, friends, be well.